you have your Bible, turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verses... I'm going to skip around here in 4. Starting in um, 4.4, we are finishing up the sermon series in the book, and uh, next week will be the very last one, and then we'll head into something new at the beginning of September. Just want to remind you about Philippians, that Philippians is the epistle of joy, that probably per capita there are more references to joy or permutations of joy, rejoicing, all of that in this book than any other book in the Bible. And we get a taste of that once again here. Where Paul says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Skip ahead to verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me in sending the financial provision that they did through uh, Epaphroditus that we've kind of covered that throughout the, the letter. I rejoice greatly that you did this. Indeed, I know you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret, oh, the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to start out the sermon today by giving you a definition. And typically sermons are not supposed to begin that way. You've heard a lot of sermons in your lifetime. And very few of them began with a definition. Most of them start with jokes. Or with catchy stories. Things that capture the listener's attention and draw them. And definitions don't uh, normally tend to do that. But I want to give you a definition of joy. And and essentially, this sermon is about my definition of joy. Like, what is joy? Um, If you are a student of the Bible, you know that the Bible uses that little three-letter word in such a wide variety of circumstances and situations Joy is notoriously difficult to define. It's it's a tiny little word, but the Bible requires that word joy to carry a ton of freight. And I I thought, if I could give you a definition of joy that you remember six months from now, or even six hours from now, I I would probably, truly, I would be giving you something of great value. So here it is. See if, let me try at least. Here it is. I want you to begin by thinking about the person you most enjoy being with on this planet. The person that you just love to spend time with them. For many of us, that'll be our spouse. For some of us, that'll be one of our children. Maybe it's just a, a friend. But, but that person, picture that person in your mind. The person who is the kindest to you. The person who loves you in spite of your flaws. The person who, who extends to you the most amount of grace. When you are with that person, 
you share together many, what I'll call, high-intensity pleasures, don't you? So um, last Sunday, we got, Aaron and I got to celebrate our 18-year wedding anniversary, and we went out to dinner together, we went out to pizza, which was very romantic, and <laughs> Blaze Pizza on Eagle Road, where you can pick all of the toppings that you want, it was fabulous, and then we went to the Shakespeare Festival out in East Boise, and we got to see King Lear, and the pre- uh, it was amazing. Lear this year was absolutely amazing. Those were, I came home that night and thinking, that was just a high-intensity moment of pleasure. It, it couldn't have been any better. And you have that with that person, whoever that person is. You, you share a meal together. You go to a movie together. You see, uh, you listen to a great concert. And the word that we would use to describe high-intensity moments of pleasure is happiness. You feel truly and deeply happy with them. There are also many low-intensity moments. You are, you t- you're just perfectly satisfied sitting next to them reading a book. You don't have to be talking to one another. You just sit there and read, watch the sunset, look at the hummingbirds, go for a walk, and you don't have to say a single word to each other. But in those low-intensity moments, you, you experience shalom, peace, Shabbat. Sabbath, rest. High-intensity moments are happiness. Low-intensity moments are peace. And then, for lack of a better word, you go through dark-intensity moments. You go through the valley of the shadow of death, and you need that person by your side. When calamity strikes, and you suffer some devastating loss or undergo some tremendous trauma, you you need that person by your side. You you lean into that person. You, You... Dwell in that person and you tap into their strength and finding their strength there comes steadiness and equilibrium in the storm and in, in the suffering. High intensity, low intensity, dark intensity. What, what then is joy? Joy is the word we use to describe being connected through all of those things. So my definition of joy is this. Joy is what it feels like to be securely attached to somebody else, to that other person. Joy is what it feels like to have a secure attachment through the entire spectrum. High, low, middle, all of it. Joy joy then is sometimes going to express itself in happiness. Other times it will express itself in shalom. Other times in equilibrium. But joy is what it feels like to be, to be wonderfully, securely attached. And if that's the case, then what is Christian joy? Christian joy is what it feels like to be securely attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. I spent most of my week give, writing that up, so... <laughs> The sermon should be short at this point. <laughs> Maybe that doesn't strike you as, as very pr- profound, but oh, it, it really shook me. What I want to do for the remainder of our time is describe to you why I think those, it's a very good definition and how it relates to the passage that we have before us. Whenever I've listened to pastors talk about happiness and joy, typically we, we set we make a a big distinction between this thing over here we call happiness 
And this thing over here we call Christian joy. And usually we give happiness the stink eye. You know, happiness is, eh, it's kind of shallow. It's entirely circumstance dependent. Happiness, you feel happy when circumstances are going well for you. Happiness is a warm puppy's kiss. Happiness is a chocolate bar melting in your mouth. Happiness, pastors tend to say, is superficial and kind of sentimental. But joy, we're for Christian joy. And joy is deep. And joy is not dependent on circumstances. You can be joyful even when your circumstances are are terrible. Happiness is shallow. Joy is deep. Happiness, uh, joy is C.S. Lewis. Happiness is Pharrell Williams. (laughs) Happiness is Bobby McFerrin. Have you ever heard that before? I have. Part of it is 100% absolutely right. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 6.10, that I am, quote, sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Paul writes the epistle of joy from a prison cell in Ephesus. You can be 100% in prison, full of sorrows, and still be rejoicing, and still experience joy. Yes, my pastor friends and I, we are right. Joy is not dependent on things going well for you. But it would be wrong to drive such a wedge between the two. And why, why is it wrong? It's wrong simply because the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't have this like stark contrast between joy and happiness. Oftentimes, those two words are used synonymously. Joy gets described as merriment, gets described as gladness, gets described as delighting and happiness and dancing and shouting. It's very important, I think, to say that happiness is not a four-letter word. Joy is more than happiness, and sometimes joy is not happiness, but, but happiness is a product, usually a product of joy. And that's what I was saying, right? Because when you're securely attached to another person, man, you get, some, you get some Sunday nights like I had last week. My definition... The second thing I want to say about it, the second reason is I think it really helps us deal with the so-called psychological impossibility of verse 4. Let me explain that. Verse 4, have you ever been reading along in the Bible and you come to a verse like verse 4 where it says, rejoice, 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 rejoice always, I say it again, rejoice, and you're reading along and you come to this command and you're like, God... Do you understand how how human emotions work? (laughs) Like, I can't force myself to to feel this. Can I? Has it ever happened to you? You feel like God is telling you to do something that is psychologically impossible. I I can't make myself scared on command. I can't make myself happy on command. I can't force my my feelings into something. But if... If what I maintain is true, if joy is the result of a secure attachment, then at any given moment, you can press up right next to that person who is by your side. And if that person who's by your side that you're almost running into happens to be the rock, which is Christ, and you start pressing up against him, it's almost like joy is what blubbers out is the result of that pressure. Right? Um, 
If I'm pressing up against my king who is with me, my champion who's beside me, it's all the it's like the Heimlich maneuver and oh, hallelujah comes comes out. No, I can't force feelings, but I can make that attachment more secure. And as soon as I do, I, I have got to say, the Lord is by my side. Hallelujah. That's what it means to rejoice. Did you get the prepositional phrase there? He says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. It's not a psychological impossibility. Another advantage for my definition, it helps explain why some Christians have such a difficult time experiencing any joy. I'm sure you've noticed that. I'm sure you've known people who are, you're 100% convinced that they're believers, They are bona fide Christians. You know that. And yet, almost inexplicably, they are such dour individuals. I mean, like, where's the joy in you? I know you're a believer. And Jesus says, if you come to me, joy is inevitable. But why? why? Okay, if joy is what I say it is, if joy is what you feel when you are deeply attached to somebody else, well, we know that there are people who struggle to attach to anybody else. I mean, sin disorders us in all, all kinds of ways. One of the ways that sin disorders us is, is attachment disorders. Like we, You've seen, you've known people who, are, who have a very low capacity for relational connectedness. They can't attach, they struggle very mightily to attach to in, anybody else. And I mean, you can go through lots of different reasons. Maybe there was a trauma that was suffered early in, earlier in life, but you see it in their lives. They can't attach to their spouse. They can't attach, they don't have any, when I just said at the beginning of the sermon, like your best, best friend, they don't have that person because they don't have, um, so no wonder then joy is going to be difficult. If you can't like deeply attach to Jesus Christ, because you don't form any deep personal attachments. It's like God is ready and willing to draw near to you, but for one reason or another, you cannot reciprocate. So that might be one reason why joy is so elusive for believers. Another reason is you could be the most relationally attached person in the world, but if you lack faith, you're not going to attach to a person who you can't see. So maybe it's not, the problem isn't relational connectedness. It's simply the problem of faith. Because I would suggest that it takes a fairly high dose of faith in order to, to really attach to somebody who you cannot see. Now, have you seen Jesus recently? <laughs> Visibly seen Jesus? Um, I, I, I believe that we can see Jesus visibly, partially visibly. And we see him through the body of Christ. I see Christ in his church. <laughs> so there is a sense, a, a partial component that we can see him. That's one of the reasons why people who connect with, deeply connect with an actual body of believers, almost always have an easier time connecting with the invo- invisible body of Jesus. If you connect with Jesus' visible body, then it's a little bit easier to connect with, with his spiritual body. But 
But that, it's a challenge if you don't have faith. Okay, studying this is weak. I, you, you're not going to believe who was the author or the person who helped me the most in my studying. It was not C.S. Lewis, surprise, who, who wrote the book, an entire book on joy, surprised by joy. If you know Lewis's contribution to the joy conversation, is he said that joy is very similar to longing. He used some German word like sinschut or but that when you experience something in this life and it's so good, it, it still sort of leaves a bitter taste in your mouth because you're, you're longing so much for its fuller manifestation in the life to come. It wasn't Lewis, actually, who helped me the most. It was, drumroll, L- Lecrae. <laughs> it, was, it was a Christian rapper who helped me the most. He gave an answer in a two-and-a-half-minute video where he's answering the question, how do I pursue joy? And his answer was way better than he probably even realized it was. It was so good. And this is what he said. He said, how do, I, how do, I, how do you pursue joy? In my life, I have found that the pursuit of joy is roughly the equivalent of my pursuing intimacy with Jesus. He said, if there are horizontal you know, joy issues going on, uh, it's almost always directly related to a vertical issue going on. If there's a horizontal lack of joy, it almost always stems from, from me not truly seeing God for who he is and what he is and what he's done, his graciousness toward me, what I have been redeemed from, what I am currently blessed to experience now. Obviously, there's not a button that you push in order to like have, now I'll have fullness of joy in Christ. He says it only comes through, for me, at least a relentless pursuit of intimacy with Jesus. And isn't this how relationships work? He says, what I, he goes on, what I've found is that quantity always brings about quality. That when I want to have a good time with my wife, I, I have to have enough quantity of time with her to get some quality of time out of that. I can't just expect to say that, well, I, I opened my Bible and read for a minute, or I prayed a little bit today, I listened to a part of a sermon today, and, and this isn't working. I'm not feeling any joy. No, there has, there's got to be enough quantity. I've got to have more time with Jesus, and then joy happens by his grace. Then I find myself experiencing joy in him. Profoundly good answer to the question. One of the reasons our joy fluctuates so much is because our pursuit of intimacy is so inconsistent. Our joy fluctuates because our pursuit of intimacy kind of goes on and then off, 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 off for many days. And on, I go a little bit. um, It's hard to deepen an attachment with someone who you rarely see, speak with, or spend time with. In my life, I have found that the pursuit of joy is roughly equivalent to my pursuing intimacy with Jesus. Which leads us to verse 12. Take your bulletin. Verse 12. It's one of those blue ribbon verses of the Bible that you probably have memorized. I I did too. Where Paul says... Um, actually, the end of verse 11. I have learned to be content 
whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And what is that strength? But it's the strength of joy. There once was a young girl whose parents took her to McDonald's, and there she saw her chance to get not just a small fry hamburger, soda, and toy. Oh, no. It was her once-in-a-lifetime chance at happiness. Because somebody in corporate headquarters at Oak, in Oak Brook, Illinois, came up with the stroke of marketing genius and came up with the idea of the, the Happy Meal. And she said to her parents, can I have a Happy Meal? What did, what did parents say in that instance? No! <laughs> No, they're overpriced. (laughs) Parents said, I'll buy you a burger and we'll split a fries and a Coke, but you don't need another toy. And if you throw a fit, we're just going to go home and eat at the house. So so she, uh, tears began to well up in this little girl's eyes. You don't seem to understand. I need to be happy. This is my happiness we're talking about. Uh, And I'm sure that this will make me happy. This is the thing that dreams are made of. And then she transitions into the bartering phase. She says, I will make you this solemn promise, Mom and Dad. If you buy me a Happy Meal, I will never ask for anything again. (laughs) No more demands, no more complaints. I will be your most contented, loving, adoring, loyal child for the rest of my life. And together we'll live happily ever after. Or... You know, the melodrama goes something like that. So what do you think about the parable of the the Happy Meal? You you think only only a child could be that naive, right? Only a child could think that a Happy Meal will bring you lasting happiness. Children, they just don't know that Happy meals wear off. And when they do, you need another fix. You need another happy meal. One happy meal leads to another happy meal. That's why Ronald McDonald is always smiling. Billions and billions served. Only a child would know that you you keep buying them and, and they keep not working. John Ortberg was the guy who came up with the parable of the Happy Meal and the punchline to it all, he says, what happens when we grow up is we don't actually really get any smarter. Our Happy Meals just get a whole lot more expensive. We don't get smarter. They just get more expensive. We tell ourselves the nonsense that the key to my happiness, the key to my contentment is if I could just be in a new place. I could just get that job, if I could just have a different lover, then I'd be truly happy. And it's so crazy to me that that we'll tell ourselves that, and it makes sense to us on Wednesdays. And when you say the same thing on Sunday mornings, you, you recognize it as absolute drivel. But on Wednesdays, when you tell yourselves that, it makes so much sense. Why do we believe Something that childish and naive. 
Well, I'll tell you one of the reasons why we believe it is because that's what everybody else in the world does. And we live in a world where there are more things to do, to see, more places to go, more things to play, easier means to acquire or to get there. And yet most of the people in our world are just absolutely bored out of their minds. Everybody around us goes from one happy meal to the next until it wears off. Everybody, everybody out there just looks for a temporary fix until it wears off and they need another. So if you're a little conditioned to following and falling trapped to that game, it's, it is understandable. What the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 12 is this. Look at verse 12. Paul tells us this. Contentment, happiness, shalom, equilibrium, all of those can be found in any and every situation where Jesus Christ is present and you are attached. Happiness, shalom, contentment, equilibrium, None of those things can be permanently found where Jesus Christ is absent and you are not attached. Wherever Christ is present, that is the place where joy is experienced in plenty or in want. And if there is no Christ present, if there is no secure connection to him, then it doesn't matter what job you go on to get. I mean, when will we begin? Like, how many husbands do you have to leave in your wake? Five husbands, 20 different new jobs, 14 new homes. I just want, eventually, you'll either believe the message of the Bible that joy is found in Christ, or presumably you'll just go on forever and ever in perpetuity you know, believe in the silliness, the drivel of the Happy Meal. Finally, I finished reading Pride and Prejudice for the fourth time a week ago. And I know one of the problems in my sermons is I talk too much about sports and I talk too much about Jane Austen. But <laughs> there's an exchange at the end of the story between Elizabeth Bennett and her sister, you know, Jane Bennett. The, the main protagonist and the secondary protagonist. Throughout the whole novel, there's the ongoing question, will Jane ever get married to Mr. Bingley? Mr. Bingley is a good man. He's rich, attractive, but you get the sense, a very good-natured man, and all kinds of circumstances rise up to make their, their uh, nuptials call it into question. But finally, at the very end, Mr. Bingley proposes to Jane, and Jane and Elizabeth are in rapturous excitement, and Jane says to Elizabeth, she says, she says, how is it that I have been singled out from all my family to be so blessed? Oh, Elizabeth, if I could but see you as happy as I am. Oh, if there was another such man for you too. Mr. Darcy, <laughs> you don't know that yet. Oh, if, and Elizabeth replies, Jane, if you were to give me 40 such men, I could never be as happy as you. 
not until I have your goodness, your disposition, your character, not until I have that can I ever have your happiness and your joy. Jane says, oh, if there was a Mr. Bingley for you, you would be, you would be just as happy as me. And Elizabeth comes back with this, this deeply profound insight. She says, no, I wouldn't. Because she understands our capacity for, for joy, for happiness and joy, is actually proportional to the goodness of our characters. Like, it doesn't matter if we cooked up the, the, the perfect husband for Elizabeth or the perfect circumstance, only the virtuous woman or man is going to truly be able to appreciate their spouse. And as you read through the novel, you realize that Jane is definitely more virtuous than Elizabeth. She's far more humble. She's far less critical. She is far too trusting. She has her faults. But but she's a very easily contented soul. Elizabeth, Lizzie, recognized that recognizes that. She realizes that even if she had 40 Bingleys, she still wouldn't be as joyful as Jane because she'd pick the guy to death. (laughs) She'd find so many faults in him. It's a difference in character. The Bible teaches that repeatedly. I don't know that it's found in our passage right here and now, but the Bible does teach that holiness and joy are, they go hand in hand. Holiness and joy are peas and carrots. I messed up when I wrote my original sermon title because I thought I was going to talk about joy and contentment and, and how those two go together like peas and carrots. But really, holiness, like virtuous Christ-like character and joy, those are the two. Uh, that go, your capacity of joy increases through the years as you become more like the most joyful human being that's ever walked the face of the earth, Jesus Christ. If joy is a secure attachment to that other person, what was Jesus' secure attachment? It was to his Father. He was more securely attached to his Heavenly Father than anybody ever was or will be. And thus he was such a a man of, of joy. Did his joy express itself in happiness all the time? No, we know that. It, it expressed itself through the whole spectrum. If joy is what it feels like to be securely attached to someone else, then surely there's never been anybody more joyful than Jesus. And as you become more like Jesus, your capacity for joy, I think it, it quadruples. It it's exponential. Like right now, you and I might only be capable of one pound of joy. But the beauty is that as you grow in, the, in your own sanctification, holiness, likeness of Christ, like you might be in a couple more years capable of 20 times of it. There's a beautiful idea that the more you press into the secure connection with God. You get actual joy in the present and you increase your capacity of joy for the future. Yeah, that's good enough. Amen.